Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello there, Baha'i Blogcast. This is me, Rain Wilson. I have an extra special guest who was only available because she happened to be visiting the North American continent. I have Linda Kavlin Popov with me today, and she's currently visiting Las Vegas for some reason. And um, Linda, where do you live? What, what remote Pacific island do you live on? I live on Aitutaki, Cook Islands. Cook Islands? And, yes. It's near New Zealand, uh, Tahiti. It's a little dot in the middle of the ocean. And how many and people? Actually, yeah, go ahead. There's about about 1,200 on our island and about 12,000 in all the Cook Islands. How many on your island? 1,200 on our island. 1,200. And how many Baha'is are yes. on that island? <laughs> well, we just have a new Baha'i declared. So that makes one, two, three, four, five. Five Baha'is. Yes, including one king. He's called an Ariki. He's one of the kings of the island. We have three kings on our island. Do, do those three kings ever get into a war like Game of Thrones? No, they tend to be related. Not that that would prevent a war. They each have their own village or their own territory. So they keep away from each other's territory. Wow, so there's, there's three kings on this island, and one of the three kings is a Baha'i. Correct. Wow, that's exciting. And when did you yes. move there? We moved there about five years ago. And what prompted that decision? You're, you know, <laughs> having a successful business and the Virtues Project, which we'll get to, and, you know, yes. speaking and lecturing and doing all kinds of exciting things in, in North America. And then you moved to this island. What happened? Well, we were loving being in Canada. You know, my, we both loved where we were. Not that we were ever there. But because we were always traveling. But Rain, what happened is that um, our lives changed very dramatically when my beloved brother, John Cavillan, who was one of the founders of the Virtues Project and my best friend in the world, um, he was also living on our little island in Canada, Salt Spring Island in British Columbia. And he died of brain cancer. And we canceled all our bookings to move in with him and look after him for the end of his life. So when someone close to you dies, you start thinking, well, gosh, he's younger than I am. We better plan for our deaths. And so Dan and I had this rather important talk one morning, and I said, sweetheart, what would you, where would you go if I die before you? And he said, immediately said, Oh, I'd go to Aichitaki. I said, what? <laughs> I mean, we've been there before. I said, of all the places we've been in the whole world, why Aichitaki? He said, I really am not sure, but I think it's because it's one of the last good places on earth. So then he came to me that night and he said, you know, I would so, so, so much rather you go there with me. And I didn't sleep the whole night, and I was praying and saying, oh, Lord, <laughs> what is going on? 
why would we move to that tiny little place? No Costco, no Netflix, no nothing, you know, just beaches and people. So in the middle of the night, I heard this big voice and it said, it's his turn. So in the morning, I, we're typically, we get together now, in the I morning. No, I have to interrupt. We, I'm sorry. This big voice. Yes. Tell, tell me more about this big voice that you heard. Well, I know that big voice, and that is my voice of guidance from God. So I tend to think of the big voice as Baha'u'llah. But very often when I seek guidance, there are other, it's hard to say voices, because I'm hearing it in my inner ear. So <clears throat> it's like Baha'u'llah says, when a servant is drawn unto me in prayer, I answer him. And when I have answered him, I become the ear wherewith he heareth. So when I hear the voice of my Lord, I immediately obey. And it has never steered me wrong. So sometimes I see it as a vision, sometimes auditory. It's all about a, a meditation practice. So anyway, I went to him and I said, yes. He said, yes, what? I said, I'll go to Aichitaki with you. And I had gone on pilgrimage a year before. And the voice said, empty, empty, empty your house. I didn't understand what that meant until we decided to go to Aichitaki. And within three weeks, we emptied our house of everything. <laughs> and we went. We just took a flying leap and decided to become pioneers. That's amazing. What a beautiful story. Thank you. That's a beautiful story. And how's it been? What have the challenges been like? I know we have so much to talk about, but since we're on this topic. Well, Rain, since you already tapped into my mysticism, I'm going to tell you that we were there for a few weeks, and we happened to live in a rental house on a beach that has the most, most mosquitoes and the most sand flies. And it was hot. There was no air conditioning in the house. It was miserable. But the place was gorgeous. We're, we're sitting on the front deck, and we're looking out at this turquoise lagoon, and the palm trees are swaying in the breeze. And these people smiling at us, joking with us, beautiful people. And I was on a hammock, and I was staring at the waves, and I, was looking, and I started to cry, and I said, I think this is insane. I don't understand why we're here. Why did you tell me that it was his turn? Uh, I was fussing and sniveling. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I heard Baha'u'llah laughing, this booming laugh. And he said, oh, the sacrifices I make you endure. And then I started laughing. <laughs> because they call it paradise, and it is. It really is. It's paradise with bugs. With bugs. I mean, there's a sacrifice in everything you do. Sure. So, but we just adore it. We really do, Rain. We, we've been adopted by a family. Um, the king considers us part of his family. But there's another family. They happen to be members of the Latter-day Saints. But they've adopted us because their little girl adopted us when she was two. She met Papa Dan on the beach and... She started coming to our house every day. Oh. And now she's seven, and we are, we are her grandparents. And they, we are part of every family ceremony, every birthday. Um, 
her mother calls me mom and her father calls me mom mm. and and papa dan is daddy so we're we're in the bosom of this family oh that's beautiful I, i've never been anywhere where there was so much intimacy of friendship and family i mean i have so many friends that i have to actually create a pace of grace in my schedule so i don't overdo every day go you know have somebody for breakfast every day <laughs> right and so the, so the idea of family is very different there in a way like um oh yes yes it is extended family is very important mm. and everybody's cousins and everybody's you know aunties and <laughs> that's so funny i grew up in such a fractured family um mm -hmm. with uh lots of divorces and i was an only child and there was a lot of people alienated from each other not speaking to each other i didn't see I... grandparents for you know decades because people weren't talking yes. to them and it just yeah. like this and it's so unhealthy to kind of live in that you know in this kind of a little petri dish uh where there's not an extended family and love and brothers and cousins and because we're tribal creatures we just do we better are. with lots of love and people and extended connections between us exactly exactly and we feel so loved there and we are the source of love for so many people and especially the children like one of my grandsons down there said to me mama what are we going to do when you die we won't have anybody i said oh you won't have anybody he said well mom and dad but we won't have you <laughs> <laughs> because we're the ones that really talk to them, listen to them, talk to them about their virtues, you know, really play with them. That's the funny thing. Children are very loved, but nobody really pays any attention to them after they're about four years old. They just go off and play with each other. Mm -hmm. Cool. Let's go back to this voice, because I think that most of our listeners here are Baha'is, but we have occasional non-Baha'is listen in to some yes. of these podcasts. You say you have a mystical nature. Yes. How can people become more in touch with these voices, with uh, promptings of the Holy Spirit, um, a voice, a guidance from uh, the other side, an intuition? You know, Abdu'l-Baha talks about, you know, harnessing our intuition and, and focusing our intuition. And through your life, how have you managed to connect with this mystical side and, and direction from another place well to be honest with you rain i didn't understand about that part of baha'i life or my own spiritual life until i was in my late 30s when i went through a divorce and i was in crisis and i turned to the writings and i saw this passage that scared the heck out of me because it said the meditation in the words one hour of true reflection is worth 70 years of pious worship must needs be observed it's at the beginning of the little blue compilation from the universal house of justice on prayer and meditation i thought well holy i don't even know how to meditate so one hour of meditation is worth an entire lifetime of pious worship so I began to learn to meditate in my late 30s. 
And when it started working, it really scared me because I wasn't used to it, getting an answer. But, you know, it's in all the Holy Scriptures. So, for example, Jeremiah 33.3 in the Talmud, in the Old Testament, says, Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and hidden things that you do not know. So it's about the call. Call to God and expect an answer. Now, Abdu'l-Bahá says exactly the same thing. Things of which man knew nothing will be unfolded before his sight. And he was always meditating and, and receiving guidance. So he's our model, and therefore I learned to meditate. Now, there's an awful lot about different ways of meditating in my book, A Pace of Grace, The Virtues of a Sustainable Life. It's under the portion called Practice the Presence. It's a big part of the Virtues Project, body of work actually, is the belief that we need to honor our spirit regularly. And that means every day having a routine of reverence. So for me, it's RPMs. The RPMs of reverence are read something that inspires you, even a single verse, Baha'u'llah says, with joy and radiance, it's better than reading wearily all the scriptures of God. So read and really let it in. Pray, and prayer is a conversation with God. Now, a conversation means you're talking with somebody. So if you don't listen for the answer through meditation, you don't expect an answer, then you're hanging up before the person gets a chance to talk to you. It's <laughs> like calling somebody up. Hello, I have this question for you. Click. So we need to trust. We need a lot of trust that if a strong thought comes to us or someone gives us a book, but the guardian says you rise from prayer as if your prayer has already been answered. He talks about spending a few moments in contemplation. So for me, because I'm a writer, I use a journal. And so I write a question to God, I meditate, and then I write the answer. But very often, I need it to be a visual meditation. And that has been a very rich part of my life. So the main thing is you've got to have sacred time every day. Not a dutiful prayer where you sit down and say a prayer and then jump up to your list, your to-do list. It's taking time to be in that presence and trusting that he's there. Now, I think of it as an A-team, okay? We're told that the concourse on high, the heavenly realm, the souls in the next world, the angels are there to help us. So if we don't tap into their help, we're promoting unemployment after death <laughs> because that's their job to guide us and help us. So I call it the A-team. You may not think that the creator of the universe is going to actually speak to you, although he is closer to us than our own life's vein, according to Baha'u'llah. We don't have to comprehend his nature, her nature, to know that we're in that presence. So the A-team is angels, advisors, and ancestors. So, you're, you know, your ancestors, they're standing there going, why doesn't he listen to me? Mm -hmm. Because they want to share with us. So they may do it visually. 
through a visual meditation. They may do it auditorily. They may do it through a virtues pick. They may do it through what looks like a random, but is actually a synchronistic meeting with someone who will say something to you. Mm. Can I give you an example of that? Please. Well, I have lots of them, but for some reason, this one comes to mind. I was praying one morning, and I was really enjoying this beautiful visual meditation. I was walking across a meadow, and I saw Abdu'l-Bahá in the distance. And always he would give me some task to do, and then he would pick me up and hold me. And I was a child in, in those meditations. Well, all of a sudden, there was like this commercial interruption. And the big voice said, it's time for the Virtues Project to go to a wider audience. And I thought, what? It's in like 17 countries. It's, you know, we're traveling all the time. A wider audience. So I wrote that in my journal. I always write down what I'm told so I won't forget. So the, I finished my meditations and the phone rings. And this woman tells me she's an agent in New York, a literary agent. She says, I've heard of the Virtues Project. Now, have you written any books? And I said, yes, I've written the Family Virtues Guide and Sacred Moments, which is a daily meditation book. She said, well, I'm interested in representing you because I think it's time for the Virtues Project to go to a wider audience. Mm. Now, that's when you know that your inner guidance is confirmed. When you hear it inside or you see it, and then something outside of you beyond your control, confirms it. That's beautiful. Because I think that's what the average listener would want to say. Like, how do you know that it's the voice? How do you know that it's the guidance? How do you know that it's the impetus or the impulse to make a certain choice or go down a certain path? People want a certainty. I mean, that was about as certain as you can get. But um, Yeah. Well, you know what it is? It's, it, it becomes a habitual relationship. Mm. that you learn to trust because if you act on that guidance then you'll see the fruits of it mm. now it should obviously only be something that is not harmful to anyone I think Baha'is are terrified of meditation Yes, because they're worried about vain imaginings how do you know it's not your imagination but the truth how is God going to reach you except through your imagination mm. Mm. So after Baha, yeah, imagination that, is a divine gift. It's a divine gift, exactly. Abdu Baha says we are meditating whether we mean to or not. It's all a matter of where is the mirror of your heart turned. If you're always thinking of earthly things, then that's what you're meditating about, and that's where you live. That's where you dwell. But if you turn the mirror of your heart heavenwards, you will reflect the divine light. Mm. And he will show you things that you do not know. I think the, um, I may have said this before on the podcast. I always forget, like, if I'm having conversations with people, I forget if it was ever on a Baha'i blogcast podcast. So <laughs> listeners, forgive me if I've gone into this before. But I find it remarkable in the United States right now that half of the population prays and half of the population meditates. The <laughs> prayer people are mostly born-again Christians. 
Um, right. Not even born again Christians, just just Christians. And Christians have a beautiful way of praying. I hang out with Christian friends, and they talk directly to Jesus, and it's so heartfelt, and it's just filled yeah. with passion and vulnerability and openness, yeah. and they have the, a direct loving connection with Jesus. Yes. Um, the half that meditates are in the cities, the secular America, and meditation is all the rage in New York and L.A., uh, at yoga classes. So you've got yeah. half that are only talking to God and half that are only listening to the universe. But very rarely do we do both. And prayer and meditation, of course, is called on by Baha'is. But the other problem I have in the Baha'i community is um, the way Baha'is pray is so often pick up a prayer book and recite the words that are on the page. And it's so absent of the aching, vital vulnerability of yes. a connection from your heart's core to one's creator. Yeah. And we work on this in our junior youth groups all the time. And, and these kids will just go, oh, my God, I, da, 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 I beseech thee by thy mother, ba, da, 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 da. and it's, so disconnected. And when you bring Christians and you're around Christians and they hear a Baha'i, like look at their phone because the app is on the phone and like read in a half-hearted, lackluster way some prayer yeah. off of there, you know, Christians are just yeah. like, what is that? That's not prayer. I don't even know. No. I don't know what that is. No. And no. also Baha'is definitely avoid meditation and get kind of freaked out by it, frankly. Um, mm -hmm. So there's, we have a lot to learn as a community um, yeah. uh, about uh, the way these things work. Ray and I so resonate with what you're saying because I, when I'm in a, a group of Baha'is and to read in that way, I, I can't even pray. I go off on my own, in my own mind because it's not passionate, it's not real, it's not authentic. And if you, to me, the greatest example of the kind of prayer that you are describing, the vulnerable heart, the openness to God, putting everything in the lap of the divine is in the fire tablet. Mm. That is an example to me that taught me so much about being real in my prayer. Like if I'm angry, I give my anger to God. And I say, wasn't that the most disgusting thing you've ever seen? You know, I you got to be real. So pray the real. If you're antsy, if you're confused, pray your confusion. But not only our own words, because there's such power in those real prayers. But to me, if I don't memorize it and it doesn't become part of me, just reading it out of the book just does not cut it for me. So, And I find know, my mind wanders so much uh, when, exactly. I'm, when I'm reading something. I just, I just go off to my to-do list. I just can't do it. Exactly. So, <laughs> so let's go know, to this island. How do you say this island again? I too talky. I too talky. Okay, good. Yes, I too talky. Good. Got it. How do you teach the Baha'i faith in I too talky? I teach it every single day in I too talky. Okay, first of all, I too talky, we discovered when we were in the discernment process, are we meant to stay here? Are we meant to remain as pioneers? We didn't have a lot of money. So this woman asked us to, to look at her 
or listen to her CD that she was creating for tourists. And on it, she tells the story of the name of Aichitake. And it means guided by the hand of God. <laughs> and that was one of those days wow. I was saying, please give us clarity, Bahá'u'lláh. We really don't know if this is where you want us. And she tells us it means guided by the hands of God. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that when the Virtues Project started, we didn't even understand what was happening because it just exploded. And people heard about it by word of mouth. And all of them wanted our little book, which we you know, self-published in our little garage. And what happened is that we began, whether we wanted to or not, sharing the project with all these other people. And I was starting to feel so guilty because I wasn't serving the faith directly because the Virtues Project comes from all faiths. The, the basis of our understanding of the virtues comes from all the holy books and the oral traditions of the indigenous people of the world. So it wasn't a Baha'i project. So I was feeling just, we're putting all, all this energy into serving the world, but what about the Baha'i community? So we wrote to the House of Justice. And I wrote to them all my concerns about, you know, that the faith was over-administered and under-spirited, and maybe the Virtues Project could really help with that because the strategies of the project help us connect with our spirituality. Well, they wrote us back the most amazing letter, and they said, well, truthfully, we have already committed to another program, which was the Rui program in the early days. This was like 30 years ago or something. And they said, the Virtues Project is for the wider world. And they said, it is a bridge to the teaching of the revelation. And that has become prophetic because on the island, what I do is, first of all, I'm known as the Virtues Mama because I have a column in the newspaper called Virtues in Paradise. And I often quote the Bible a lot because it's a Christian nation. And I quote Baha'u'llah and Buddha, and, and I've had attacks from bishops saying, it isn't about Baha'u'llah, it's not about Buddha, it's only about Jesus Christ, and which increases my readership. <laughs> so I teach through my column, because I teach, I teach through just about so many conversations a day. I will actually quote the writings. Sometimes I say where it's from, and sometimes I don't. And then I have, I have a gathering every Sunday afternoon that is about learning about the faith. I have girlfriend breakfasts, which are firesides, where the faith is brought up as an answer to whatever we're talking about in our lives. Um, I have a monthly women's gathering that's based on a virtues theme. And I always bring the Baha'i writings there, as well as other writings from the one faith that is in many forms. So I, and I'm teaching the kids all the time. Oh, I have to tell you this, Rain, this is so cool. Our children, our grandchildren are Mormons, and we are very respectful of that. Sometimes when I'm really upset with them, I'll say, Mormon boys do not 
treat people unkindly. And I'll quote the Book of Mormon. I'm learning all these different quotes, you know. So, but they know we're Baha'is, which is a little puzzling to them. How could you be a different religion? But they ask questions about their faith. And one, one day, um, Pados, our 10-year-old, said, Mama, why does Papa Dan always walk down the beach before he starts taking his sunset photos, which he does every night? I said, because he's saying a very long prayer. He said, is that why he goes alone without us? I said, well, you could go with him, but he's praying. He said, okay. So he runs after Papa Dan. He says, what is this prayer? And Dan just starts reciting the Tablet of Allah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my little girl, Tassie, says, who's the king? Who's the king? I said, God is the king. Oh. So Paidoa says, Papa, I want to learn that prayer. <laughs> oh. the, ne the next night, Dan comes with a printed copy in a little plastic sleeve of the Tablet of Ahmad. And by the time we finish playing on the beach, Paido is reading this. He recites the first three paragraphs of the Tablet of Ahmad. Unbelievable. That's beautiful. But, you know, my best friend there, who is a Cook Island Maori, she just declared before we left for this trip to visit family in the States. Mm. And she, she just loves the faith. She said one time, it's like having lived in a little box and someone lifts off the lid and you get to see a new world. Oh, that's beautiful. So switching gears a little bit, um, your father is Bora Kavalin? That's right. He and is. kind of an infamous Baha'i. I don't know much about him. I know he was on the Universal House of Justice. <laughs> That's about it. So what was that like growing up Baha'i and having him as your father? Well, to be very honest with you, Rain, part of it was a terrible a test for me because I adored my father. And he was, he was a real estate broker in New York City, became very, very successful. And then he started traveling for the faith. He was he served on the National Spiritual Assembly of the U.S. And I was 21 when he was elected to the very first Universal House of Justice in, uh, at that convention in London. And then he left, and he stayed there for 25 years. And that was very hard for me. But living with him and my mother... Um, it was pretty awesome growing up as a Baha'i because every summer we would go to Greenacre Baha'i School for the whole summer. We'd rent a little cottage in the woods, and I got to hear fabulous speakers from all over the world. And also in our home, we would have people from Africa stopping and staying with us. William Sears stayed with us a lot. We had the most awesome guests. And so my brothers and I got to sit at table with Elsie Austin, who was a hand of the cause, and just these amazing people. So we were constantly being immersed. What was the test? The, the test was missing my father. And I didn't have a great relationship with my mother, so I felt I always struggled with abandonment. Hmm. I knew intellectually that I had to sacrifice him because he was serving the faith, 
but it was difficult. Mm. And then he finally came home after 25 years, and he died. I was so mad at him for doing that. Oh. I, want, I wanted time with him. And um, you wrote a book. Uh, you, you've done hospice work, and you wrote a yes. book about grieving and death and loss. Yes. And you talk uh, a lot about the loss of your, of your brother. Yes. Um, what's your Baha'i perspective on grieving and death and loss? And what's the name of your book? It's, uh, it's Graceful, graceful endings. endings. I love that. Graceful yes. Endings. How does Thank one have you. a Graceful Endings in a nutshell? <laughs> well, you asked several questions there. The Baha'i perspective on death, of course, is that they have entered the kingdom of light. And the dying, per the, the person who has passed on is entering a place of, of joy, typically. But for those left behind, we need to pray for them. We need to do kind things in their name and let them go. Well, that's why I was so absolutely shocked when I had such a grief reaction because in my head, I knew that I should just be happy for John, but I missed him so badly. He was my, he was my, he really was one of my significant others. He was my go-to person. He was the one that was my story keeper and I was his. And, and I looked, I took care of him when he was dying and that makes you so close. So he became the center of my universe, and then suddenly he went. And it, it just, you know, I was an expert on grief, right? I, I used to give workshops called Good Grief. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I, I, as the spiritual care director at hospice, I loved that job because I felt like a midwife to people that were leaving this world and entering the next. And they could feel that, you know, they could sense it. So they were much more confident and happy to go and so on. So that's why I was so shocked. But I just, I mean, at one point I said to Baha'u'llah, I just can't talk to you right now. I just can't. <laughs> I just am not going to speak to you for a while. And he's like, fine, it's okay. You know, I just felt this respectful backing away. So then about two months later, I decided to take a spiritual retreat. And I went to a convent nearby where, where I had been many times. And I said, okay, I'm going to try to pray. And all of a sudden I feel him right next to me. He goes, I knew you couldn't stay away from me. I know you'd love me. <laughs> uh, your connection with Baha'u'llah has such a beautiful sense of humor. Yes, it does. It does. And you, really do does. you... I don't know how to put this without sounding like a new age hippie freak, but do you communicate with your dead brother? You know, something I'm not allowed to. I don't know why. I've seen him a couple of times. Like one time I asked him. In fact, we were we were on Aitutaki for a holiday before we moved there because I, I needed to just be somewhere really beautiful and peaceful. And also I was writing Graceful Endings. Um, and at one point I said, could I please see John or speak to John? And all of a sudden he was there and I said, John, what is it like? And he said, oh, it's just heaven. 
<laughs> using my mother's southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, what are you doing? Like, what do you do there? And he gave me this glimpse, Rain. He gave me, he, he stepped aside and he pointed at this, like a crystal city. He said, I get to, to design that. Uh, he's wow. a designer. You know, he was an Imagineer with Walt Disney. And we stole him from Disney for the Virtues Project. So, <laughs> so he took his skills learned at the Walt Disney Corporation, and um, and he designed Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. He did, he did. We used to call him Mr. Toad when he was a little boy because he went so fast he'd fall up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. What a great yeah. story. So now we'll uh, transition to the topic that we've all been waiting for the Astounding Virtues Project. I remember I was introduced to it, I think by Amy Porter, Casey Porter's wife, who's a Baha'i near me. And I saw the book on the shelf, The Virtues Project, and I opened it up and I, I just, my eyes went wide. It was so beautiful <laughs> that these, all these pages with these spiritual virtues as very simple digestible lessons for children and their parents. Yes. Um, the idea of focusing on a spiritual virtue for a week, for noticing it in your life, having a dialogue about it over a week or over a month, over an extended yes. period of time, so that children can have their attention drawn to the specific virtue, be it honesty, compassion, what have you, and be noticing it as they're doing it throughout the week, as other people are doing it throughout the week. Um, yes. And then all the other resources that you've done, the virtues cards, the educator guides, we brought it down to my wife and I and um, Dr. Catherine Adams and um, a whole bunch of Haitians that we work with and uh, oh. Haitian Baha'is and, and non-Baha'is on our, our project in Haiti. We use a virtues guide. Um, we get exercises from it. We really uh, enjoy it. So how did this come about? Well, Rain, every year Dan and I would choose a service project for the community. And one year, we hadn't quite chosen it yet, and my brother John left his role as uh, Imagineer for Disney, and he came for a visit. And we were having brunch at the Empress Hotel in Victoria, British Columbia, on his last day, and he started saying, I really need to take a leave of absence from Disney because... I'm longing to do something of direct service for humanity. And Dan and I looked at each other and thought, aha, this is why we haven't chosen the service project yet. So we started talking about what are the needs in the world? And John actually left Disney. He, he quit and he took a leap of faith and came and stayed with us for what we called our summer of discernment. What we talked about was I was a psychotherapist doing a lot of work with children, families, adults. Dan is a pediatric clinical psychologist and a scholar of the world's sacred text, and John, a designer. And so what came to us was the high level of suicide and violence amongst children and youth. And we thought, somebody really should do something about that. And that was the seed that grew into the Virtues Project. It was like, how do you help these kids that do random acts of violence, shoot a kid off his bike, who don't, they don't even know? 
And when they have incarcerated these kids, and they said, why did you do it? What were we thinking? Oh, I was bored. Now that level of boredom is the disease of meaninglessness. No sense of a meaning in life. What is my purpose? There's this longing in youth to make an impact, to develop some idealism. That's the time when idealism develops. And if there's no place for that, and there's no hope, there's a failure of hope, there is then a vacuum of virtues. So we thought, well, we better find out what the meaning of life is. So we looked into the Bible, the Baha'i writings, the Bhagavad Gita, and at the heart of the meaning of life are the virtues. We, why are we here? To love, to serve, to have joy, to be creative, to reflect the virtues in the nature of God. So that's how it started. And then we thought, well, how do you reach children? You have to reach their parents. So that's where the idea of the Virtues Guide came from. And you self-published a book. Yes. And you have several books out. How yeah. do you take the ideas of the Virtues Project and spread it into the world? And by the way, before you get to that question, I love that, you know, my favorite quote of, of Baha'u'llah's, um, which I'm going to mangle now, be anxiously concerned with the needs of the age you live in. Yeah. So there you were having this discussion, anxiously <laughs> concerned with the needs of the age yeah. you lived in. And out of that consultation and consultative process yes. came the germ right. for this uh, incredible mission. So um, That's right. my hat, my hat off to you. If I had a hat, I would, I would doff it towards <laughs> you in your general direction. Well, we absolutely had no idea about marketing. We're not marketers. And something happened. We had one of these sacred events, which is part of the, what the, the Maoris call the Whakapapa, the Sacred History of the Virtues Project, in 1990. So one morning when the Virtues Guide, the original Virtues Guide was almost laid out by John, I come into the office, which was our garage, <laughs> and he's madly typing away. And I got this sudden premonition that he should turn off the computer. And I said, John, save it and turn off the computer. And he goes, are you crazy, Linda? I'm just about finished. I said, just do it. You know, the big sister to command. He sighed and he backed it up and he turned it off. And the moment he turned it off, Huge crack of thunder, all the electricity went off. He would have lost a huge Oh, my amount. goodness. The wind howled around our house for three days. It was dark. It was cold. It was January in Canada. And all we had was a little wood-burning stove in, in the garage. So John and I got up early the next morning and tried to make tea on the stove. And he said well, what are we going to do with it now that we finished it almost? I said, I have no idea. I said, we better ask. He said, ask who? I said, and I just pointed. I said, John, we should really meditate. And he goes, I'm not very good at that. I said, okay, darling, let's just get quiet and just reflect. So we're sitting there in the dark. And then I say, so, John, did anything come to you? And he said, yeah, something about Native people. 
and I had a flip chart, so I wrote native people. And he said, what about you? And I said, you won't believe this, but I heard First Nations first. Wrote that down. And I said something I have no idea what it means, integrated community development. So that was our guidance. And then I said, how the heck are we supposed to get this to native people? All they need is more white people telling them how to live, much less raise their children. I don't understand how we, I, I always argue with God before I accept his will. <laughs> so third day, the lights come on, the, everything, the heat comes on, and the phone rings, and I answer it, and this woman goes, are you the people with the virtues? I said, yes. She said, will you bring them to my people? I said, what people? She said, I'm the director of education for the Tsawatanuk First Nation of Kinkam Inlet. And she said, we really need your help. I said, we're there. She said, well, this is our budget. I said, you're going to pay us? Mm. Mm. <laughs> so three weeks later, Dan and I have this box of photocopied virtues guides. And we are in Kinkam Inlet, British Columbia, having flown there in this little seaplane to the middle of nowhere. And that was the beginning. And that's what I mean, Rain, about meditation. You hear it inside and you see it outside. You know that is your guidance. That's incredibly beautiful. And it's gone all the way across Canada. It's been all over the world in indigenous communities because they recognize the virtues as their identity, their value system. Mm. All their oral stories about courage, honor, justice, love. What do you say to atheists about the Virtues Project? Well, it's more what they've said to me. I, I've had atheists in Virtues workshops, and I've said, well, how is this for you? Because, you know, the Family Virtues Guide mentions God, and, and all my other books are quite spiritual and godly center and they go well i'm spiritual i'm just not religious and one woman said i just put another o in the g word and i'm fine with it <laughs> Godo. so no i'm just uh, for a lot of people with no particular religion it is like their spiritual path and what are some of the spiritual strategies of the virtues project oh thank you for asking i think that maybe one of the signature contributions of the project. It's five strategies. The first one is speak the language of the virtues. And it means whether you're correcting someone, you're acknowledging someone, or you're thanking someone, you use virtues language because it shapes character. Language is so powerful that it can destroy someone's spirit or it can uplift them. So if, for example, Someone is, let's say a child is starting to hit another child. You can go over and say, I want to know what's happening here. And you need to use your self-discipline right now because people aren't for hitting. So let's get peaceful now and tell me what's happening. What's, what are you feeling? What's going on? So you, but it's also very important to thank people with a virtue because if you just say, thank you so much, you're just showing how thankful you are. But if you say, thank you so much 
for your excellent attention, Rain, then you know that it's about your excellent attention. Mm -hmm. So it's also the way we think. So language of virtues, language is the way we think, the way we see people, the way we speak, the way we hear, we're hearing, listening for those virtues, and the way we act. So it's a whole approach to life. And it leads to the second strategy, which is recognize teachable moments. Never shame yourself in terms of dwelling in a place of guilt. Use guilt only as a signal for change. So if I open myself to lifelong learning, then I'm, I've captured that strategy. And if I make a mistake or I hurt somebody, I'm not going to make excuses. I'm going to make amends. So it's a very, very important. It's something not only for individuals and children, it's for countries. Like I was in Spain one time on a book tour of Las Virtudes Familiares, the Family Virtues Guide in Spanish. And the, the host on the radio show said, so does Spain have virtues? I said, well, you know, there's always the, there's the virtues you show and the virtues you need to grow. And I said, I would say that one of the virtues that Spain as a country shows is huge enthusiasm, passion for life, passion for food. And he said, what about the growing ones? I said, the growth virtue for Spain is orderliness. <laughs> I said, you go to the airport and you wait for three hours in a line and as soon as the people come, you know, the agent comes, everybody rushes to the front. And there's no line. You know, he said, you're right. We have absolute chaos. Mm. Language of virtues, teachable moments. The third strategy is set clear boundaries based on justice. So whether you're protecting your health by establishing a pace of grace in your life, you know, moderation, or... You're setting house rules for a family or a school. Instead of, um, you're not trying to torment a child with punishment. You're trying to mentor them with education. So authority is always in the service of learning. Always. But my, like at my age as an elder, I have a lot of boundaries about my time and energy. So I choose who I'm going to be with, how I'm going to spend my energy. And I don't, I'm very discerning about what are my yeses at this stage of my life. And everything else is a non-negotiable. Mm. It's a whole attitude toward school discipline. So schools all over, all over the world are using it as a way of having a reflection room instead of detention room. And kids will think about what they've done and say, Here's the virtue that I forgot to practice. Mm. And next, this is what I'll do. Mm. Okay, the fourth strategy is honor the spirit, which we've actually talked about quite a bit. Mm. Have a routine of reverence every day. Um, honor your spirit by doing what you love. Like love what you do and do what you love. So it's like um, one of my favorite quotes is Jalaluddin Rumi, the Sufi mystic. He says, let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Mm, gorgeous. So then 
the fifth strategy is a lot more to honor the spirit, but I'm, I'm going to just move on. The fifth strategy is called offering spiritual companioning. And this is a way of listening someone else into clarity. It's like um, that minister, Portals to Freedom, can't remember his name. Howard Colby Ives. Very good. Excellent. Boy, you have a good memory. I have a good it's, memory. It's losing. Short. I'm losing it. I'm 52, and I'm, I'm forgetting more and more, and it's, it drives me bonkers. In fact, there's one word. It's the word Asperger's. I always forget the word Asperger's, and I can never... And I even try to picture a butt and a hamburger to remember that word. And then I was thinking, well, maybe I have Asperger's if I can't remember the word Asperger's. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, let's continue. Sorry about that. <laughs> a little comic relief in the midst of this lecture. Well, so, no, step good. five. So, step five. step five, strategy five is spiritual companioning, which means that you ask the magic word, what? Okay. You, you companion someone so that they can hear their own voice, so that they can find their own solution. It's not about tap, giving them your wisdom. It's helping them to find their own wisdom. So, for example, Abdu'l-Bahá, when he was with Howard Colby Ives, Ives said, it's like being listened to with your own ears. Because Abdu'l-Bahá would sit in silence, looking into the soul of the person, and they'd be going on and on and on, and they would find clarity and they would find love. Mm. So companioning is a whole process that we teach mm. in the Virtues Project, and it's as simple as what's going on. So, for example, when John got his diagnosis of brain cancer, inside I was falling apart. But I was with him, so I wanted a companion him. So I said, we got, we got back in the car after the doctor told us about it, said he had three months to live. And I said, <clears throat> so John, how is this for you? <laughs> and he goes, you know, I don't know yet, but I'm really hungry. <laughs> Let's go have breakfast. So he ordered everything on the menu. Of course, if you had three months to yes. live, why would exactly. you not get the chocolate chip pancakes for breakfast? Exactly. <laughs> so I remember saying to him, the hearty, no, the condemned man ate a hearty breakfast and he just burst into laughter. So I companioned him through his dying process, which took actually 15 months. <laughs> he, he had a marvelous last season of his life because we use the virtues strategies the whole time mm. to make life better for him. So the great thing about the virtues project is that parents can use them with their kids. Yeah. Baha'is can use them with children's classes and youth classes. Um, you can use it in your workplace, um, in community development and, uh, and in education. You know, you can use it in the, in, in the schools or um, oh, yeah. That's um, right. there's so many different ways to use it. And I really encourage people to go to virtuesproject.com. There's a virtues shop there. They have reflection cards, family virtues guide, which is the kind of the founding book 
a pace of grace, virtues in a sustainable life. There's um, a poster, gifts of character poster, um, educator virtues cards and family virtues cards. And um, uh, it's, it's all just, just terrific stuff. And speaking of the website, let's go to the um, two things about it. One, I noticed you've got a novel up oh, there. Yeah. You've got a so you. I know. So on top of everything else, of, of being a clinical psychologist and working in hospice care, starting the Virtues Project, speaking all over the world, and now pioneering um, in that island. I can't remember how to say. <laughs> is it Asperger's? No. Okay. And um, the uh, you've written a book. So tell me about this new chapter in your life of of writing. Well, I really wanted to write a novel about my experience with the First Nations. And every story in there, I've either witnessed it or it happened to me. So, um, but it's a page turner, I'm told. People say I couldn't get any work done. I just kept reading the book. But it's about a First Nations woman who is in Toronto, is a journalist, and she goes through this huge adventure, finds love, and we're almost running out of time, so I can't tell you anymore. But it's on Amazon and in the virtue shop. And I, I really love that book because it gave me a chance to tell the story of the lost generation, the children that were stolen from the villages and raised in residential schools. And it was true identity theft. They were just, their identity as First Nations was just destroyed. And that's trying to get it back. And oh. the Virtues Project is a way to do that. So the strategies are sprinkled throughout mm. the book I hope artfully, you know, so that people will understand more about the Virtues Project as well. I have to show you something. Dan and I have just created a new product called Sunset Meditations. I can't remember the rest of the title. <laughs> um, reflecting on the Virtues Within. And they're different than the other ones. They're just little glimpses of each virtue, and it's about 56 cards. And I want to show you one. I know other people can't see it. Yes. Wow. Yes. Showing me on the Skype here. Generosity, a beautiful card with a beautiful photograph. And the front of each card just says, has a little phrase like, generosity, a giving heart. Now, Dan is known on iTotaki as the sunset photographer. And on people's birthdays, he takes a photo of them puts it on top of the sunset from their birthday and gives it to them. He takes rugby photos. He does all this. And now we've used his most beautiful cards, his most beautiful photos for these sunset meditations. And they will be available very soon. That's great. Now there's a fun thing we're going to do before we sign off. The On the front page of the Virtues Project, there's a little tab that says, Do a Virtues Pick. You can also get an app on Android or iPhone to yes. do a Virtues Pick. Is that right? What's the name of it, the app? It's Virtues Pick. <laughs> virtues Pick app. Okay, great. So we're going to do a little Virtues Pick. I'm going to do it here on, on the Wait. computer. We're going to see what comes up. And it's a random virtue. I want you to say a couple of words about what's on your mind right now. Okay. What's on my mind is I'm, I'm trying to make a lot of big... Uh, life decisions. Um, there's a lot of different paths through the forest and I'm okay. not sure which one to take. Excellent. That's what's going on in my life right now. 
All right, so here goes. Unity. And it's a beautiful card that's popped up. Unity is a powerful virtue and brings great strength. It is inclusiveness. It brings people together. And um, the practice of unity, there's an Ojibwe prayer. We know that we are the ones who are divided and we are the ones who must come back together to walk in the sacred way. And there's a little meditation. I'm thankful for the gift of unity. It makes me an instrument of peace. Um, really beautiful card. How does that card. speak to you? To your question, Rain. Hmm. Um, I think that, you know, some of the decisions I'm trying to make as an actor, as a writer, um, as a, as a Baha'i, as a citizen, as a, as a public figure of celebrity, um, maybe trying to find a way to unite them, um, uh, to unite all these disparate things that I do uh, in some way. Um, so that's that's the, just mm. some impulse that, that came up for me, uh, as opposed to thinking of them as these disparate yes. things, because I'm kind of get yes. into a mode of either or. Well, to me, you're actually using your virtue of discernment right now and wisdom to actually seek what will feel like it's in unity with you and your spirit. So I'm, I'm seeing discernment in you. I absolutely value your sacred curiosity and your, your friendly, open presence. You made me so relaxed that I just talked and talked. <laughs> <laughs> it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And I, I wish we could have another hour of conversation. There's so many more questions I want to ask. So maybe we'll do a part two with you. At that some would point. be wonderful, Rain. I'd love to. Or I'll come down and see you on the island and um, we'll hang out and record part two. Absolutely. We'll hang out and actually do a whole virtues pick with both of us. They're perfect. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.